do you ever just like stop and think about the world that we're in right now where a majority of Republican voters and a majority of House Republicans just think the moon is made of green cheese? Yeah. Yeah, I do, Jake. Pretty much every day, Jake. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing planet earth i'm brad friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com your mileage may vary thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the bradcast uh we've got quite a bit to get to today as usual since we last uh spoke late last week and i'll do my best to get us caught up on the latest in Israel and Gaza, the ridiculous ongoing GOP House speaker fight, and, if time allows, some Trump accountability news. Although I should note, by the way, some breaking news within the past hour or so. Two more hostages have been released by Hamas in Gaza, two Israeli women in this case. So we will uh, get to a little bit more of that later, unless you all decide to dis uh, derail me with calls again today at 818-985-5735. But first, I want to try to get to my guest. I'm going to succeed in getting right to my guest today because uh, he both speaks to a lot of what we have been covering lately and... Uh, he also sets the table, I'm afraid, for the, uh, well, for the coming week, the coming months, and yes, even the coming election year. So let me start here. This morning, after many days of controversy online, the New York Times, long known for better or ill as the paper of record in the U.S., published an editor's note about its early coverage of last week's deadly bombing at a hospital in Gaza. It reads as follows. On October 17, the New York Times published news of an explosion at a hospital in Gaza City, leading its coverage with claims by Hamas government officials 
that an Israeli airstrike was the cause and that hundreds of people were dead or injured. The report included a large headline at the top of the Times website. Israel subsequently denied being at fault and blamed an errant rocket launch by the Palestinian faction group Islamic Jihad, which had uh, which has in turn denied responsibility for that. American and other international officials have said their evidence indicates that the rocket came from Palestinian fighters positions. The Times initial accounts attributed the claim of Israeli responsibility to Palestinian officials and noted that the Israeli military said it was investigating the blast. However, the early versions of the coverage, the Times notes, and the prominence that it received in a news in a headline, news alert, <clears throat> and social media channels relied too heavily on claims by Hamas and did not make clear that those claims could not immediately be verified. So what did the banner headline actually say in the immediate aftermath of the explosion? Well, as uh, the New York Times put it, quote, Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Well, it did make clear that the claim was coming at the time only from the Palestinian side, but as the paper's rare editor's note concedes today, the report left readers with an incorrect impression about what was known and how credible the account was. The Times continued to update its coverage, they note, as more information became available, reporting the disputed claim uh, claims of responsibility and noting that the death toll might in fact be lower than initially reported. Within two hours, today's ed note, editorial note reads, the headline and other text at the top of the website reflected the scope of the explosion and the dispute over responsibility for it. Given the sensitive nature of the news during a widening conflict and the prominent promotion that it received, Times editors should have taken more care with the initial presentation and been more explicit about what information could and couldn't be verified. Now, the Times were not the only uh, outlet to seemingly mislead the public in the early aftermath of that explosion at the Gazan Hospital. Despite early claims that the Israeli military was unaware of any involvement in the matter and actual claims of denial shortly thereafter, major outlets, um, as we were careful to note at the time in our coverage, uh, major outlets like Reuters reported the bombing virtually as a fact, uh, reported it as if it was an Israeli airstrike that caused it. That was carried out by the Israelis. AP did the same, though, as we also noted that day, they were a bit more cautious in their rhetoric attributing the tragedy to Israel. But by then, in fact, the damage had been done as the news uh, was blaming Israel essentially for an airstrike. And that had spread around the world almost as quickly as the rocket fuel in the parking lot outside of the Gazan hospital, where what appears from several, d several different independent analyses and experts to have been an errant rocket fired by a Palestinian militant group toward Israel before it then veered off course to explode near the hospital. 
Those analyses that cast blame for the explosion on the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group are not necessarily conclusive, but they do seem to represent an emerging consensus, as noted by a number of different independent analysts. The event... And the way it has, for many, turned public opinion against Israel following the horrific October 7 attack by Hamas that killed some 1,400 in Israel, well, that might be characterized by my guest, joining us momentarily, as misinformation. The accidental spreading of what turns out to be inaccurate news, in this case, in the fog of war, which is hardly rare, but as in this case, it can still be exceedingly dangerous. Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California was uh, not quite as generous as I'm trying to be here. On the site still known as Twitter last week, he accused the New York Times of bad faith reporting, charging the paper, quote, intentionally wrote an attention-grabbing headline that falsely pointed the blame at Israel to generate clicks during breaking news without waiting for confirmation or the actual facts. Now, the upside... Uh, at least uh, at the time, we were able to identify that those reports, misleading as they might have been, uh, actually came from the New York Times or Reuters or AP. But the owner of the social media site, arguably most relied upon for breaking news during such situ situations, seems dead set on making even that hard to know, even making it hard to know even where reports like that come from, if they should, uh, you know, be given any sort of credence based on the fact that they come from a mainstream outlet. Last week, in what I believe to be an unrelated incident, Twitter, which has now been renamed X, actually removed the gold verified badge from the New York Times account on the website amid ongoing complaints about the news organization from the owner of X, Elon Musk. The badge was the only symbol distinguishing the Times' 55 million follower account from imposter accounts amid two major global conflicts in Israel and Ukraine. That, as the Washington Post notes, X has hosted and helped amplify a flood of false information related to the Israel-Gaza war, some of which Elon Musk has personally endorsed via his own feed, followed by more than 100 million users. After Washington Post's story was published last week, the Times' main account, which had lost its gold checkmark, was given instead a blue verified badge, which, while once indicating the account was that of a confirmed politician or journalist or other public figures, yes, our own Twitter account, the Brad blog, previously was a verified blue check account. Well, now uh, those blue badges are available to any Twitter user who chooses to pay $8 a month to Elon Musk's social media site. A Times spokesperson said on Friday that uh, X, quote, continues to provide no information or explanation for any of these moves. The changes to the site's verification system has made it more challenging for users to seek out authoritative information, as if we need it to be more difficult, 
A study released on Thursday by the media rating news service NewsGuard found that 74% of the worst Israel-Gaza misinformation on X had been spread by paid-for blue verified accounts. If it was only misinformation akin to the New York Times' failure, we might have a a chance at countering the bad information. But disinformation, according to my guest, is far more insidious and, I believe, more difficult to counter. He cites Musk and X and the dismantling of both the site's verification system and the gutting of its content and safety staff since he took it over as resulting in virtually no content moderation on the site, making it easy for propagandists to simply buy their way to what now amounts to instant credibility to millions around the globe for, well, to put it nicely, wildly questionable sourcing. Joining us now is Lee McIntyre. He's the best-selling author of 2018's Post-Truth, 2021's How to Talk to a Science Denier, and his latest, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Well, that seems important. McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. His critical work has been translated into 17 languages, I believe, and his essays have appeared in The New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, Nature, Newsweek, and many other venues. Uh, Lee McIntyre, thank you very much, sir, for joining us today on the broadcast. Brad, thank you so much for having me on. I, you know, I have I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, Lee. Uh, initially, about the disinformation that we may need to somehow arm ourselves against as we head into another presidential election year, uh, with a. GOP candidate, a presumptive GOP candidate who has built his career uh, and and his business empire on disinformation. And then these horrible, horrible attacks uh, took place uh, by Hamas and it's uh, the brutal af- aftermath uh, by Israel happened. So I hope to talk a little bit about both uh, beginning with Israel. But first, Lee, what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? And ultimately, does it matter? Is Is one really worse than another? Yes, and you uh, set it up beautifully. Thank you very much. Uh, misinformation is an accident, but disinformation is a lie. So the important thing to remember uh, is that disinformation is intentional. Uh, someone spreads it because, or they create it and then spread it because mm-hmm. it serves their interest. And their goal is not just to get you to believe something false, but to uh, polarize you, to make you begin to distrust people on the other side. Misinformation is something that is incorrect, but somebody truly believes it. And it's important to point out that there's a relationship between them, which, which I think you did very well, which is that something can start as disinformation, but then it goes out to the people who hear it, who mm-hmm. are really victimized by the lie. And then they spread it as misinformation, but it still started as a lie. It started as disinformation. And I believe that's the correct mm. interpretation for what you just described with uh, what Hamas did, mm. uh, which was disinformation, and what the New York Times did, which was misinformation. So they sort of go hand in hand. In in your um, You argue in your new book on disinformation that there is a uh, there's a purpose, though, to disinformation beyond simply disinforming on any particular thing, but to get the targeted 
consumer to ultimately disbelieve those who do not share a belief in the same falsehood and to demonize and or hate them? Is is it also part of the, the plan to demonize the actual legitimate media sites, flawed as they may be, to essentially discredit them on any future issues that they may report? Yes, because um, through polarization and through the raising of uh, mistrust and distrust, I mean, one message that comes through uh, with disinformation is, you know, maybe we can't even know the truth. Maybe it's just too difficult. Uh, We have fact checkers, but who fact checks the fact checkers? How do we know? Is everybody biased? Because in that sort of a situation, you might give up on the idea of truth. You might mm-hmm. think that there's just no such thing as uh, as knowing the truth. Mm. And in that case, that paves the way for authoritarianism. Now, I'm not convinced that that's what Hamas had in mind. I think that they jumped very quickly on this uh, mistake, this errant, what looks like an, an errant uh, uh, missile mm-hmm. uh, launched by Islamic Jihad, and used it to their advantage, turned it into disinformation. But notice what they did. They um, they used it to their advantage. They wanted something. And as you uh, really put it before, by the time it was outed, the damage was done. They had already gotten what they wanted, mm-hmm. which, by the way, was no- not just to get people to believe a falsehood, but the polarization, because you cannot put that genie back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. There were already worldwide protests. People were already um, upset about it. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll bet you to this day there are many people who, you know, once once the initial account comes out and they hear it, uh, they just believe it. And so I'll bet there are still many people, if they did a poll, and I'm not sure they have done that yet, mm-hmm. who think that the uh, rocket was uh, set by Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, furthermore, even if you uh, recognize that the New York Times made a mistake, uh, well, that means that next time the New York Times reports something that you don't like, you can say, oh, well, that's the New York Times. They always get everything wrong. Exactly right. I mean, the problem here is that uh, in in a polluted information environment, you begin to not just take the false for true, you begin to take the true for false. Mm. You you begin to think that, you know, there's just really no distinction between them. And and you're right, it undermines uh, what is otherwise a, a credible news source. And I have to say, it seems to me that you are correct in uh, framing it that the New York Times was maybe misinformation, but they were sort of complicit. That is, they sort of pushed that headline about mm-hmm. as far as, as it was possible to push it mm-hmm. and still have some wiggle room uh, on the other end. Uh, and they weren't the only one to do it. I was watching yep. uh, live coverage on uh, cable news as this was happening, you know, in real time, watching the the cable news station sort of freak out and uh, and I could tell right in the moment, this is disinformation. Be careful, mm. you know, be careful how you're framing it. Because again, it's it's too late once the message is already out there. Which is uh, bad enough in and of itself. And we can go back to the, you know, 2003 and the disinformation that I believe got us into the Iraq war and so yes. forth. Uh, but now it's kind of, you know, disinformation on steroids. You've been very critical of Elon Musk's restructuring of the verification system since he took over Twitter uh, and fired 
much of its online safety team. How has disinformation, uh, as you see it, been allowed to flourish, uh, for example, when it comes to the Israel-Hamas conflict on the social media site in a way that, uh, that in, in sort of a new way that we, we haven't seen yep. uh, since we've been fighting, you know, accuracy at New York Times and so forth? How, how does uh, social media make that easier? Well, I think that unfortunately, what we just saw with the, uh, the the bombing of the hospital is a harbinger of things to come with the uh, election cycle coming up in 2024. Uh, people are sophisticated about the creation of disinformation. They're not quite so sophisticated about fighting it. Mm. And I think that you you don't you, you can't just blame the people who are doing the creating the disinformation, there have to be people who are amplifying it. And this is one of the faults of social media. I think that it's at least willful ignorance, if not uh, worse than that, that they're, they've de, uh, they've deconstructed mm -hmm. uh, the safeguards that they did have in place. Musk has uh, gotten rid of his trust and safety council. He now has something called community notes which looks to me like he's just crowdsourced uh, content moderation. He's just, you know, letting anybody comment <laughs> on anything as if, if, you know, everybody has a voice. And I'll tell you what that attracts is trolls. That attracts partisans. And yeah. it just makes it harder and harder to sort out what's true and what's false. Uh, they're not the only ones. Meta has now gotten rid of their responsible innovation team, dismantled mm. it. So, you know, this... This is sort of a, a terrible thing because it's a perfect storm of more disinformation and less uh, content moderation, fewer safeguards. It is uh, an environment in which a lot of people just feel that they can't trust anyone and they just have to give up. Mm. And really, that's why I wrote my book, because I want people to understand that there's a way to fight back against this. You don't just have to, you know, believe the the first media accounts that happen. There, There is a, you know, there's a way to be critical, there's a way to be skeptical, but also a way to, you know, push back against social media, to push back against cable news and even the government to try to make them better uh, and more responsible in how they fight disinformation. And I, I do want to talk about some of those things that people can do to push back. But, you know, I got to tell you, Lee McIntyre, when I read uh, NBC News, for example, Brandy Zadrovny uh, reported last week that, quote, a handful of influential but unreliable breaking news accounts, many promoted by Elon Musk, are now dominating the flow of news on Twitter around the Israel Hamas war and easily outpacing established mainstream news outlets, according to new research. Uh, Lee, if if the guy who creates the algorithm that determines what you get to see on such sites uh, is able to manipulate it that way, I mean, how can that possibly be countered? It, it, it is uh, it, it is a tragedy. And, I, and I've got to say that Twitter, even before Elon Musk, yeah. had its problems. Yeah. I mean, in 2019, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Yep. The night before Elon Musk took over, eight of them still had a platform uh, on Twitter. So, I mean, they're, and now, of course, it's even worse. Now they're going in the, the wrong direction. Uh, I, I don't know how you counter that, to tell you the truth, because people are... Um, 
we're still relying on Twitter. We're still reading it. We've still got that reflex that that's the place where you go for breaking news, but it is not the same as it used to be. I mean, look in my, in my book, I do recommend, I mean, one of the things that I recommend that people do, you know, would it work to just send uh, messages to, uh, uh, to Twitter? Would it work to quit the platform? Would it work to, you know, contact them and, you know, complain about their coverage? I'm not sure, but, what about contacting some of the uh, organizations that Twitter relies on? Uh, Twitter, you know, we just think of it as being monolithic, but Twitter depends on Amazon Web Services, mm. Apple's App Store, GoDaddy, mm. WordPress, Akamai, PayPal, Venmo. Are we contacting them to mm. say, I don't like the disinformation coverage on Twitter? What are you doing about it? How many letters would they need at Akamai? How rare is that for them to get a letter um, complaining about one of their uh, clients? I think that, I mean, look, they lost advertisers. Twitter lost a ton of advertisers not so long ago. And I think that that is exactly where you need to put the pressure, put the pressure on Twitter's advertisers, also put the pressure on the hosting services, the financial services that keep them in business because they are... Uh, doing a great disservice, great harm. And I don't know when that crosses the line from uh, intentional to willful ignorance. I mean, uh, Elon Musk has made some moves that, you know, really give you pause. Yeah, no, he really has. Uh, let me look at, uh, sort of uh, f- from the other side of this, Lee. Uh, at the, you know, at the same time, there's been, sadly, a bunch of false information about the government censoring people on social media in violation of the First Amendment uh, when it comes to COVID disinformation and election disinformation and so forth. Um but uh, and and that's false. The government has not been doing that, but they do contact these social media outlets to let them know of their concerns. Who should ultimately be the authority on what is legitimate information versus illegitimate information? You no, know, Elon Musk said, "Oh, I'm a, a First Amendment absolutist." We've learned that's nonsense. He's not. Mm-hmm. But if we pretend uh, that uh, you know uh, the First Amendment means anyone can say anything, I mean, who should be the authority? Uh, to, to to take down people's posts. Lee, I, I will note, by the way, um, you know, in fact, a tweet of mine was censored some years ago. This was before Musk. Uh, it was regarding very specific, independently verifiable facts about <clears throat> voting systems and a, uh, a Republican secretary of state in Alabama mm-hmm. at the time. It was 100 percent accurate, but it was taken down. And that was quite troubling. Uh, who should be the ultimate authority on on th- this sort of thing on social media? Well, it's a vexed question, right? Because anything that we do, we've got to be careful uh, of, you know, whatever tools we create, if it falls into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, would we trust a, a future administration with, you know, governmental control of something like that? Because to tell you the truth, we've seen in Russia and Turkey, those are countries that have leaned into the fight against disinformation, but they're not really fighting disinformation. They're defining what disinformation is ah. so that they can persecute their political enemies. Yeah. So people are rightly upset about the idea that the government would do this. But I think that it's a false claim that folks are making that the government has been doing it, you know, influencing the social media companies. Mm-hmm. It is 
Um, they're protected under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. They can put up or take down virtually whatever they want and not get sued over it. So that really gives them a lot of power. It gives them a lot of control and a lot of responsibility. So, you know, what's next? What happens? Um, we have we have invested an awful lot of um, social responsibility and the idea that the people who own these companies are going to do the right thing, you know, are not going to post nonsense about um, uh, COVID uh, during a pandemic, you know, so that people die because of it. And, and yet and, they have every right to, Lee, no matter how dangerous well, it is, no? That that's the problem. They we're now testing the limits of that with with Musk and him making somewhat idiosyncratic decisions on this. And you know, to be continued, what happens with the 2024 election? Look, one of the best proposals that I've ever heard along these lines is by a uh, cognitive scientist out of University of Bristol named Stephen Lewandowski, mm -hmm. and um, his proposal is that what we really need is not um, censorship although content moderation is not censorship. Um, it doesn't violate the, the First Amendment. That's against government yeah. censorship. Mm -hmm. What Lewandowski says is that we need uh, more transparency. Um, one thing that Congress could easily mandate is that there would be a board of uh, experts um, from academics, from tech, who look at the algorithms of the social media companies uh, so that they're not black boxes and we can tell in mm. advance, you know, not waiting for a whistleblower mm -hmm. when it's likely to cause harm. Mm. That's an easy form of regulation that the government could do over social media companies. It seems to make sense. You could blind user data they, so that they, you know, they couldn't tell you know, who individual accounts were so that the data mm -hmm. were not misused. But I mean, that would be one way to have at least some modicum of, um, you know, extra uh, uh, corporate control over these companies, because as it is right now, I mean, why is it that when a story appears in the New York Times, they can get sued over it? Mm. But if this, a story appears on social media, they can't. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily arguing for parody in mm -hmm. that. But what I'm saying is that it's really been the Wild West with social media for quite some time. And we're now reaching the point where we're seeing the damage that that can cause. Looking towards, well, more solutions, maybe, uh, but also looking towards uh, 2024, Lee McIntyre, you note that uh, one of the primary tactics of disinformation is repetition. And the more we hear a false statement, the more likely we are to believe it to be true. Well, Donald Trump obviously, is a champion at this. He is still, uh, you know, he still claims falsely without any evidence that the 2020 election was stolen, but he keeps repeating that over and over and over again. Uh, and incredibly, a huge majority, about 70 percent or so, of Republicans actually still believe him, believe that Joe Biden did not actually yeah. win three years later. Uh, to, to what do you attribute that? I, we'll start there. That one's an easy one. It's there's a cognitive bias um, that we all have, right or left, that the more we hear something, the more likely we are to believe that it's true. And that works for either false or true information. Uh, I mean, the colloquial name is the repetition effect. Um, so, you know, if, if, if somebody, this is why Trump does it. I mean, I don't think that he set ever sat down with a social psychology textbook and learned this, but he know he's a master propagandist. He understands that every time he says hoax and witch hunt, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. that becomes a slogan for his people to repeat back to him and then they don't need to know the facts because they've got the uh, the slogan in fighting disinformation why don't we do that too why don't we repeat the truth it seems it one thing that's frustrated me in my my earlier work on science denial you know dealing mm. with uh, anti-vaxxers and climate deniers and yeah. flat earthers and such is that what scientists had tended to do is say well you know i presented the facts and they rejected them what am i going to do and walk away but if they're repeating the lie over and over and over and you say the truth once it's rejected and you walk away yeah then the information environment is flooded with untruth and so you know one one of the best ways to fight back against disinformation is to tell the truth and repeat it um and that's i mean that yep. sounds so simple yeah but you know why is it that when something is uh true we we can't say it more than once you know why does trump every time he says you know the stolen 2020 election um it, you know somebody can't counter or the you know the newscasters don't counter right by saying you know the legitimate 2020 election now of course they're not partisans so they're going to claim that they shouldn't do that i note though that uh nicole wallace who's one of my favorite on msnbc when she begins her broadcast she talks about trump she says the disgraced twice impeached ex-president trump yep. i mean yeah. so she makes sure to repeat those facts uh so that people hear them that's it's a very effective technique well, you know, there's this uh, sort of this uh, unhelpful virus uh, in in the media, in the corporate media, never mind social media for now, but the corporate media, this notion that uh, correcting someone who says it was the stolen election in 2020 to correct them to point out to say there is absolutely zero evidence that it was actually stolen, that somehow that's partisan. That's not partisan. That's just a fact. That's just the, the, the truth, truth, right? That's not even saying well, it wasn't stolen. That's just saying there is no evidence for your claims. And yet we're in some sort of a media no. environment where corporate media believes that would be partisan to point that out. Well, it's it's because the person, the disinformer has made that claim. They're making the partisan claim and then the media wilts under that uh, and, and gives into it, which, the, you know, should not be done. I mean, uh, remember, one goal of disinformation is not just to get you to believe a falsehood, but to polarize you around the falsehood. And who's polarized? Not just the people who believe it, yeah. but the people who don't believe it. Because even if you don't believe it, well, you don't want to be accused of being politically biased. I mean, that's the worst thing in journalism, you know, other than nobody uh, uh, reading your story or watching your show, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be accused of political bias. So if the if Trump says, oh, you're just politically biased, then they might, you know, back off. And by the way, that's effective. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump's using that now against judges. He's mm -hmm. claiming that the judges are politically biased. And so he's sort of getting special treatment. He's able to do things that violate yep. uh, his terms of release that no other defendant would get away with. And I think it's because the judge does not want to be, uh, Judge Chutkin I'm talking about here, does not want to be accused of political bias. So it, again, uh, he, Trump, for all his idiocy uh is really a master propagandist he understands how this works and it is it is not political bias to point out a fact uh, i mean I, yep. I heard someone say look on on cnn after their you know recent upset there they said you know well we're going to just start reporting it straight down the middle well here's the problem you know, you you set it up. You ask just exactly the right question. What do you do when you have this person on your show who's telling a lie, and then you feel like you can't push back? 
I'll raise the question, why is the liar even on the show? Thank you. Um, yes. I mean, somebody, uh, I, I forget his, his name. Uh, 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 this isn't mine. Okay, I'm borrowing this from someone else. Yeah. He's just written, I can't remember who. said, how do you tell both sides of a lie? Exactly. You, you, you cannot. Yeah. You, you know, you you just you cannot book a liar in your program. Let them lie, not push back, and think that you're doing your job. I mean, it's at least push back. And and I've seen some people push back, you know, very well. Jonathan Swan did it in his interview mm -hmm. with Trump. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I've I've seen others not. Yeah, no, it's it, it's not easy, and and especially when you're actually dealing with Trump directly. You're right; he is an absolute master manipulator, yes, uh, if is. nothing else. Uh, I'm I'm running already a little bit late, but I want to get in one more, uh, maybe two, two more questions here. Here's here's okay. an example of uh, of disinformation that I don't believe was actually spread by Donald Trump, but that his uh, supporters nonetheless seem to uh, to take on uh, faith. Uh, this is an interview by our friends over at the Young Turks with a South Carolina supporter of Donald Trump's this month. Let me play this and then I'll ask you a specific question about it. Donald right. Trump's the commander in chief. No, but and not then, now, but not now. Sure he is. Yeah. We have a resident who is the, the president, the installed president in the White House. We also have a commander in chief. Biden runs the D.C., the 10 square mile area in D.C. Trump's running the rest of the show. But he's not like he's but not he even. Is. But he is. He He's is. not even privy to that intelligence. Oh, yes, he is. How, how is he privy to it when the president has it's not shared all of it? It's a military operation. So yeah. Trump is behind a military op uh, operation that's going to make this correction? Yes, he is. And where is, where did, how do we know this? Uh, let's see. You can start doing research. Um, do your own research. So, you know, and to be to be clear, that is not true. Trump is not the commander in chief. Joe Biden is. Uh, but that is the QAnon MAGA industry, which is huge. Uh, Lee, is this do your own research line? Is that now code in den denial land, whether it be denial of elections or vaccines or climate change for don't trust legitimate news outlets? And if so... You know, while I agree with the idea of doing one's own research, the, the people who seem to espouse that do not actually do their own research. That, that just seems to be licensed to cherry pick from an anecdotal yes. piece of information that, you know, supports their own priors. Am I right about that? So searching the Internet for something that confirms your bias is not doing your own research. <laughs> and, I've, and I've got to say, the first time I ever heard that phrase, do your own research, was from a flat earther. I went to a flat earth convention, and I note that the technique of reasoning that they use about uh, cherry picking evidence uh, and uh, believing in conspiracy theories and engaging in illogical reasoning are all things that that woman just did. So, you know, there, I mean, that should give one pause, right? If the, if the, the method of reasoning that one is using is the same one that's used by, by a flat earther. Uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, at a certain point, don't you cut the mic at a, at a certain point, do you, you know, that, that I, I don't think they covered themselves in glory and, in, in you know, pushing back uh, on on that. No, not necessarily. But I think it's important for people to understand what people are thinking out there and just how off, the, you know, if this was just one, some crazy woman, that would be one thing. But there are 
millions of these people yeah. now in this industry. Like I say, it is an actual industry. Uh, Lee McIntyre, uh, your book on disinformation offers a list of, uh, I think, some 10 ways that uh, both the general public and the media can push back. Can you leave us very quickly uh, with your sort of top recommendations for each, for the public and the media, before we then send folks off to buy your new book for Christmas? We only got one, and it works for the general public or the media. Yeah. You cannot win a disinformation war unless you're willing to admit that you're in one. Mm. Uh, if we put our head in the sand and we keep calling it misinformation when it's disinformation, uh, we're going to lose. And I think this is relevant to the interview that you just played for me, because you don't fight back against something like that with facts. That's not going to work. You fight back by uh, refusing to amplify it. And ultimately, for the person who's already, you know, infected by the bad belief, by understanding that what's really going on is a lack of trust. She does. She's not just misinformed. She's had her trust broken in conventional sources. And we have to, at some point, be, uh, begin to see how we can try to repair that. <sighs> Help for that repair is available in Lee McIntyre's new book. It's called On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at Boston University, the author of many critical books. Uh, now, as we head into a, an election year, uh, there may be no book more important than On Disinformation. You can get it at leemcintyrebooks.com and anywhere that books are still sold. Lee, a great speech. Oh, by the way, uh, I, no Twitter address, Lee? Oh, uh, all my handles are on my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. Uh, they're they're all uh, linked there. Okay, I was going to congratulate you for not having a Twitter account, if that was the case. I'm afraid I do. Okay, <laughs> uh, we're outing you then. Uh, go to uh, leemcintyrebooks.com. Lee, uh, really appreciate your time today. Hope to uh, speak with you in the future. Thanks for all the great questions. I enjoyed it. You bet. Thank you, sir. All right, let's take a quick break here. Uh, come back with some news. I don't know if we're going to have time for calls or not. I'll put it up. I'll throw it up there. Desi Doyle. We'll do uh, our best. We'll do our best. 818-985-5735 is our phone number. We're on FunDrive here, so you'll need to hit number one to uh, get in on the air. Otherwise, number two when you call that same number to help keep KPFK. Uh, and Pacifica Radio on your public airwaves. Quick break, and we are back with more news. Maybe your call straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Trying to keep the wheels on the world. Catching up on a number of ongoing stories that we have been covering since we last spoke uh, last week. First, in Israel, where Israeli strikes in Gaza continue at an intense pace in response to the 1,400 said to have been killed by Hamas in Israel at the start of the month. The unconfirmed death toll on the Palestinian side, according to Hamas officials, so take that information for what you believe it's worth, uh, has risen now to more than 5,000, many of those deaths, including civilian women and children. Israel, in turn, uh, has raised its estimates of uh, hostages held by Hamas to 222. Actually, I think it would be 220 now, that following the release of two American hostages last Friday and two Israeli women just an hour or so before airtime. Haven't even got to look into the uh, details yet. Uh, but two, as I understand it, Israeli women who have also been freed, who had been held as hostages in Gaza. Limited humanitarian aid, uh, however, is now finally beginning to make its way into Gaza in the wake of Israel having shut down all food, water, medicine and fuel into Gaza immediately following the October 7 Hamas attack. And the Biden administration is reportedly pressing Israel to delay its expected ground invasion of Gaza, according to the New York Times today. The administration has advised Israel to delay the planned invasion in hopes of buying time for hostage negotiations and to allow more humanitarian aid to reach Palestinians in the sealed-off enclave. The administration is not making a demand of Israel and still supports the ground invasion and Israel's goal of eradicating Hamas, that according to U.S. officials. But fast-moving events since Hamas released two American women on Friday have spurred the administration, the Biden administration, to more urgently suggest, to politely suggest, that the Israelis at the very least allow time to negotiate the release of these other hostages. President Biden called Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday afternoon to discuss the latest developments. They reportedly agreed that after the entry of the first two convoys of humanitarian aid into Gaza over the weekend, there, quote, will now be continued flow of this critical assistance. That, according to a White House summary of the call, the leaders also, quote, discussed ongoing efforts to secure the release of all the remaining hostages taken by Hamas, including U.S. citizens, and to provide safe passage for U.S. citizens and other civilians in Gaza who wish to depart. Don't forget, there are hundreds of Palestinian-American citizens said to have, you know, simply been in Gaza visiting family members or, or whatever, who are now also trapped amid Israel's unrelenting airstrikes to date. They would uh, certainly be in even more danger if Israel undertakes a ground invasion in coming days before uh, those American citizens are allowed out. The ground invasion has been repeatedly delayed, according to four senior Israeli defense officials, um, 
who added they don't know the reason for the postponement. Two of them said it was possibly related to the uh, negotiations. CNN on Sunday also reported that U.S. officials believe a delay could allow time for the release of more hostages. And again, in fact, two, two more were released on Monday. That sort of seems to me that that ought to be the uh, uh, top concern right now, not just for uh, uh, the U.S. and other nations who have their own foreign nationals held hostage, uh, but for Israel as well. The New York Times reported last week that uh, that American and other Western officials familiar with the talks said there was optimism that Hamas might release women and children because of international backlash to their abductions. In more dumb news from the Republican-controlled U.S. House, and I use the word controlled advisedly these days, uh, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Tell me about it. The, uh, the, the, the speaker candidacy of hard-right Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, well, that went down hard on Friday. He failed in a third vote for speaker in the morning, and then his status as speaker-designee was revoked by the House GOP in the afternoon. So the House is still shut down. Congress can't do anything. We're now heading into what I believe is the, is the fourth week of Congress being all but shut down with no clearer sense of where any of this goes from here. As of Monday morning, there were said to be nine new GOP speaker wannabes in the House, most of whom I have not even heard of. Uh, they'll be making their case. Uh, they were making their case in a, a candidate forum that was scheduled for Monday night among Republicans with another round of internal GOP voting for a speaker designate set for Tuesday of the uh, nine. And this is noteworthy, I believe. Only two of them of the nine who are putting themselves up to be the new speaker, only two of them voted to certify the 2020 election. If the, if the GOP cannot settle on one of those nine uh, after having already rejected the caucus's top three choices previously, well, the House GOP could then elevate Congressman Patrick McHenry from uh, his current position as speaker pro tempore to some form of uh, permanent temporary speaker for a while. Uh, but that, of course, would likely still require the help of Democrats unless the House GOP suddenly comes to its senses. And what are the possibilities of that? Yeah, it seems a little unlikely, although it does sound more recently as if the uh, concept of McHenry being a temporary speaker to do just a limited amount of things, it seems like that might actually not be a thing anymore. But it's difficult to tell because they're all over the place. Have you heard that place. recently? Because it goes back and forth right. every few minutes. Yeah, I and... actually heard it earlier today. That was one of the rumors that, oh, you know, one of the hardliners is against that because, you know, for whatever reason. For reasons. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, oh, no, the hardliners are absolutely against that, uh, whether they decide to come around and realize this is more embarrassing for them than they can afford politically. Now, the problem is a lot of those hardliners are in gerrymandered districts where, you know, I think uh, Matt Gates won by something like 15 points when he ran in uh, 2022, despite being investigated for sex trafficking, a minor, uh, despite all of his antics. So uh, just another downside of gerrymandering. You got a whole bunch of people in, in Congress um, who don't need to worry. They can do any damn thing they want 
uh, and they won't pay a price uh, before voters. Uh, in moving on to another story here very quickly, the uh, Georgia RICO trials uh, that was set to see its first day of jury selection on Monday, uh, this Monday, today, in Fulton County, Georgia, in the uh, speedy trials demanded by Trump attorney Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro, will not, in fact, be starting today or most likely ever, for that matter, as Powell pleaded guilty last Thursday, as we discussed on Thursday's show with Susan Greenhall of Free Speech for People, after she originally was the one to identify that Georgia's uh, statewide voting software breach by Team MAGA led by Sidney Powell, actually began during the infamous Trump Oval Office meeting in December of 2020, and it included a multi-state conspiracy to tamper with voting systems by Team MAGA. Uh, And that multi-state conspiracy has apparently yet to be investigated as such by federal officials. The Georgia case against the remaining 16 defendants. That continues to move forward, though no trial date has yet been set there in Georgia. Substantive motions are due in the case by uh, by December 1, by those 16 still felony-charged co-conspirators, and it is believed that we are likely to see more guilty pleas following those from Powell and Chesbro, who each got off exceedingly easy in theory, in exchange for valuable information that they will supply to prosecutors against hires up like Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Chesbro, an architect of the fake electors plot, he was originally charged with seven felonies in Georgia. He was allowed to plead guilty to a single felony count of conspiracy to file false documents. He was sentenced, however, to five years of probation. He's required to perform 100 hours of community service, to pay $5,000 in restitution, and write a letter of apology to the people of Georgia. If he completes probation without incident, his conviction will be expunged under Georgia law. So, yeah, he got a pretty good deal. But as part of that deal, he is said to be cooperating with the district attorney, Fonnie Willis. The New Yorkers, Charles Bethia and Sue Halpern, reportedly obtained a copy of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's 400-page criminal report into the Coffee County voting software breach, which we helped break on this show, and which still, as we keep trying to tell you, very much threatens the 2024 election, due in no small part to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's failure to take any measures to defend against the theft and distribution of the voting systems used across the entire state of Georgia and in many other states, including here in California. The uh, report from The New Yorker confirms a good deal of our own reporting, the uh, report both from the uh, uh, New Yorker and from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Specifically, it confirms that Raffensburger not only has not taken action on what happened following the Coffee County voting system breach, but he actively worked to cover it up in the first place, as we have been trying to get across. As Bethia and Halpern report in The New Yorker, Quote, on January 7, 2021, the day after a right-wing mob stormed the Capitol building, several people paid a visit to the Coffee County Elections Office. A year and a half later, 
The Georgia Bureau of Investigation began formally looking into the allegation that computer trespass had taken uh, place that day. The delay seems to have been due to resistance from the Georgia Secretary of State's office, they report, which for months denied that a breach had occurred. Confirming once again what we have been trying to tell you now for the past year that uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state of Georgia, who was seen by many as a hero because he didn't allow, you know, he didn't uh, steal the election for George uh, for for Donald Trump, despite Donald Trump's strong arming on that uh, now infamous January 2 phone call. Yeah, Brad Raffensperger did not steal it on behalf of Donald Trump, but he is no hero. Yeah, and he's also not updating Georgia's machines after they were breached. He's not he said he's not going to update them until after the 2024 election, which I think is just insane. Yep, despite the fact that there are security patches, security upgrades made by Domi uh, Dominion to ready uh, to apply. Yep, but he's not doing it. Brad Raffensperger is no hero. He needs to be called out for his cover-up. We will continue to do that today, tomorrow, and probably for the rest of our days. I've got to get out. My uh, thanks again to my guest today, Lee McIntyre of Boston University, to my board operator, Wendell Handy. Thank you, sir. And, of course, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Uh, that is made possible by those of you who support this program. Thank you. You can drop me an email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there at all of the above. Until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. To the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.